0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday on CHML News, of course, we told you the story about another crash that occurred downtown Hamilton. King and Hest Street yesterday closed a stretch of the downtown for quite some time after a driver collided with a pedestrian and then fled. Uh, it's not the first time it's happened, and uh, it should be raising alarm bells for an awful lot of us. Uh, Ryan McGreal and Raise the Hammer wrote about it yesterday. Uh, the uh, blog is called People Keep Getting Crushed on Hamilton's Dangerous by Design Streets. Ryan joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Ryan, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Thanks, Bill. It's great to be on the show.
0: Well, it, and as you all pointed out in your piece in, in Raise the Hammer, this is a, this is not a, an isolated incident. This is becoming a pattern now.
1: Oh, it is, and it has been for a long time, and uh, nobody at City Hall really seems to care. Uh, i, I You know, I can't help but but draw a contrast between uh, the alacrity with which council convened an emergency session in order to repave a section of Main Street West because it had too many potholes with their complete lack of any sense of urgency about the fact that people are being uh, severely injured and even killed on these same streets and we're not doing anything about it
0: well let let's let's talk about this, and because I mean, there are a number of different factors here. and uh, and I guess one of the reasons maybe they're not doing anything about it is because there's there's no quick solution. It's not just, hey, let's convert this. Let's do this. People are driving too fast. People are driving recklessly and And it just seems as if Main Street seems to be the focus of attention an awful lot of the time
1: uh, sure. and and you know, to be fair, the the collision that happened yesterday was at the corner of King and Hess. Um, but, I mean, on Monday, just about three, three days ago now, there was a three-vehicle collision a block away at King and Queen, where uh, one car was completely smashed in, uh, another car was flipped upside down, and a third car had rammed into a building. Uh, that was just this past Monday. Two weeks before that, at uh, at King and Queen, again a block away, uh, a, a man riding a bike was killed when a cement truck made a right turn into him and crushed him. I mean, people are... Are literally being killed, and it's happening, you know, and it, it disproportionately on our our big, fast, multi lane arterials, particularly our one way streets.
0: All right, let's talk about possible solutions here. Uh, if they won't have this discussion at city hall, maybe we should be having it right here.
1: Sure, I mean, the, you know, there's there are there are sort of long term structural changes that need to happen, and certainly with with LRT coming, I mean, King Street is going to be transformed by having um, center running uh light rail transit light, light rail transit running in dedicated lanes down the middle of the street. So you're going to have one lane in each direction it's going to be calmer traffic it's going to be mostly local traffic rather than cross town that's going to be work in the long term but in the meantime why couldn't we take a lane of king street and just you know throw up planter boxes and create a dedicated two-way cycle track i mean you had uh, a lane of king street was closed for over a year during um, a building construction that happened you know for uh, part of the Branage project there, and there was absolutely zero impact on traffic flow. So we could make that change. I mean, it's as cheap as as concrete planter boxes. Yeah, That's it already.
0: But but why is there such a reticence to do something like that? You and I had this discussion about the Claremont access some time ago, and and the fact that you know for the longest time, as you say, there, there, there was a lane that was being blocked off. If life got on, but the councils just they dragged their heels on. know oh, should we make it a bike lane? Well, we're not so sure. And you're absolutely right about this. The same thing has occurred on Main Street. And, you know, when they were building the condo project uh, just a block away from City Hall, as you say, it was about a year now that the left lane was closed. We we we, we got by. It, it was fine. Why not close it permanently then?
1: Exactly. But there's just, there's no will. There's no uh, sense of urgency. Um, there's There seems to be a collective belief that people uh, being seriously injured and killed is just sort of, Part of the cost of business—that it's just something that, well, you know, you know. I keep, I keep hearing people say things like, "Well, you can't fix stupid," and you can't, um, you know, you you, uh, you you can't nerf the community. I mean, that's—it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's a really kind of fatalistic and defeatist attitude. Uh, you know, I mean, people's lives are being transformed. I mean, even people who aren't killed. I know somebody who was struck by a car when they were crossing the street legally at uh, at maine and uh, and Queen again, just you know all within the same two three block area and uh, you know years later has chronic pain and is you know his, his, their life is is transformed permanently by this kind of thing and we know what works. We know what other cities are doing and have done and are continuing to do and are dramatically reducing the number of serious collisions that involve injury and death. I mean Hamilton, we're kind of in the middle of the pack for Canadian cities, um, you know. But if you look at Vancouver, for example, you know, 20 years ago, Hamilton and Vancouver had the same rate of serious collisions. Now, theirs is significantly lower than ours because they have been doing these things: adding protected cycle tracks, widening sidewalks, planting more trees, slowing the traffic down, increasing transit service. They've been making those changes, and you know, a small change year after year, incremented over a decade or two decades you're talking about i mean several people's lives what's that worth
0: well that's that's the question but do you get the sense sometimes though, Ryan, that, that at city hall they love to talk the talk but they don't really want to walk the walk because there are going to be ramifications there's going to be pushback i mean you know we we, we can talk about the uh, for instance the dedicated bike lanes of course that on um, with herkimer and you know that that people are still ticked off about that i mean they don't seem to understand exactly what this is all about and and even the people that are against lrt uh, you know they're saying, well, you know what we should doing is just the the Rapid Ready report, which talks about bus stuff and, and BRT. That also means dedicated bus lanes. Are you ready to do that? Because we tried that on on King Street, member, a couple of years ago, and and council backed off because they got so many complaints and phone calls. We we just don't seem to have the political will to say, look, at this is the right thing to do, even though there's a few people in this town that may not like it.
1: Oh yeah, I mean the the, the people who are saying that we should do BRT instead of LRT. Clearly, don't understand what BRT is because it is just as disruptive to traffic as LRT. In fact, done properly, it costs almost as much to build and actually costs more to operate. But, 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 but seriously, I mean, I think the the, the real pushback, the most serious pushback, is from people who just don't want to change the status quo. And uh, you know, and what I would say, and, and what I do say to people who kind of identify as drivers, you know, and have made that part of their part of their identity and actually feel threatened by anything that looks to kind of rebalance the street a little bit, is that when a street is safer, it's safer for everybody, including people in cars. I mean, it's, it's people driving cars who are being injured and killed, as well as people riding on bikes and people on foot. These, our streets are dangerous for everybody, and making them safer makes them safer for everybody. This should be a no-brainer.
0: Well, but again, where's the will? and and not just mean the political will, but I mean, even in the community, I think we we have this sense that you know we've got to get from point A to point B as fast as we can. And anybody who's going to get in my way is is just you know the the bane of my existence and and we've we've talked about that in the past. I've talked about this with Hamilton police services as well. I mean, people are angry when they get behind the wheel, and if they have to be slowed down for a minute, they get really angry, and it's just it's the wrong attitude and and you're absolutely right. I mean, a collision's a collision. If, you know, if, if we're, we're talking about trying to make st- the streets safer, but at the same time, you know, this, this is why you know they say, "How come the insurance rates are so high? They're higher in Hamilton than they are in many other cities because we have more accidents and collisions."
1: Oh yeah, and not only that, but look at the at the amount of delay that affected people driving yesterday as a result of this collision. You know, the traffic was backed up for several hours because the police had an entire block of the the city closed down in order to investigate a serious collision. Collisions are one of the biggest sources of delays and and slowdowns in traffic congestion in this city. I mean, if nothing else, you know, if you can if you can calm traffic down to the point where, you know, we're not on almost a daily basis having serious collisions that slow that block the street for several hours, that in itself would allow people to get where they're going faster, regardless of how they're getting around.
0: There's always a pushback and, and I can remember even when the discussion in town started about about an LRT system uh, and it was still a concept at that point. And, and there was a pushback and a resistance on people saying, look, nobody's going to force me to get off my car. If if that's what you choose to do, that's fine. But that doesn't mean that, that the status quo has to be maintained. I think we all have to understand that we have to change this community uh, for the better. I mean, that's what evolution's all about. Uh, you know, if you don't change, <laughs> then you, you're stuck in the, in the same situation. As you say, it's the definition of insanity.
1: You know, if you look at aerial photographs of, of Hamilton from the 1970s, And you look at aerial photographs of Toronto and Vancouver and, you know, Calgary and various different cities, they all look very similar. Uh, In in the post-war period, there was a real push to turn every city street into like a four or five-lane one-way expressway. Uh, A lot of buildings were knocked down to make room for parking lots. And so when you look at these aerial photos, you look at a city that almost looked like it lost the Second World War, you know, where you have whole blocks where there's no building. It's just demolished gravel lots. Now, if you fast-forward to today... A lot of those other cities decided to take a different direction. They invested in transit. They invested in in wider walking and cycling facilities. They invested in urban livability. And if you look at aerial photos of those cities now, they're full of buildings. They're full of people. They're full of vitality. You look at aerial photos of Hamilton today, and we still have entire city blocks that are nothing but gravel lots with cars parked on them. We still have four- and five-lane, multi-lane, one-way highways. We still have a lot of poverty, uh, a lack of economic opportunity. I mean, we're making bad choices and we're paying the price for them and we're seeing the consequences happening right in front of our eyes. On the few little areas where we've actually decided to make baby steps in the right direction, if you want to look at James Street North and the fact that it was converted back to 2A in 2002, at the time, I mean, civic leaders said, look, James Street North is dead, forget about it, it's never coming back. It almost immediately started to turn around and it is now, you know, considered one of the city's highlights. You know, we're known nationally and even internationally for this amazing hotspot that we have. We're actually showing up on some like best cities lists because of this, this jewel we have in our core. That was very nearly uh, derailed by people who are afraid of change go back and read the letters to the spectator back in 2001 and 2002 they predicted chaos they predicted doom that was going to be a disaster no one's going to go downtown anymore it's going to be the death now well the exact opposite happened but we're every time we have this debate again the same failed discredited arguments come back over and over again
0: yeah, well, you're singing to the choir there. I was on city council that 2002 decision, and and uh, the phone calls that we got, and you know, the the the, the, the close-mindedness, and and that was very frustrating. And council, to their credit, went ahead with the the, the projects anyway. And uh, uh, there there needs to be more of that. And and this is not just on a, on a philosophical level. This is a pragmatic. Decision. I mean, we're smarter now. About how we design cities. I mean, you know, you you look at some of the neighborhoods, even in the East End and the west, the west End. You know, back in the '30s and '40s, you just slapped houses up. You know, just more streets, more streets, more streets. Now we say we demand green space, we demand bike paths and walking areas. We're smarter about that, but we haven't done much about our main arteries. We we're still working in in a, a really a 20th century, a mid early 20th century mindset here, where we say you know everybody wants to go to the North End to work in the daytime. Let's get them all down there, and then at five o'clock, let's get them all home again. Uh, our lives are different right now, but we haven't made that change as far as how we're going to plan our streets.
1: What's interesting right now is that downtown Hamilton, the downtown core, is the biggest employment center in the city. It's got about 26,000 jobs, and it adds about 1,000 jobs every year. It is our biggest employment center, but we treat it like an afterthought. We have Main Street and King Street, these four- and five-lane streets blasting right through it. Uh, You know, uh, last week, a transport truck an 18-wheel transport truck which has no business driving through the downtown core except that it's on the truck route because council decided to allow transport trucks to shortcut through the city a transport truck on main street jumped onto the curve gone to the curb took out a utility pole and crashed into a building why is this happening this is insanity bill this is crazy that we just kind of shrug and go oh well i guess that happened this isn't normal, and our perception of what is normal and acceptable needs to change.
0: But we we, we have to wait until there's a crisis. And uh, a lot of our listeners may remember uh, the truck uh, you know up Upper James, and they come down the Claremont Access, and at more than one occasion, as you recall, Ryan, the the. the Brakes would fail on some of these. There's a school right there on a playground at St. Patrick's where the kids are playing right there. And on a couple of occasions uh, there, but for the grace of God, there could have been massive injuries and even deaths as a result of that. So we got smart and we said, okay, we're going to do something about that. But why aren't we doing it on Main Street and King Street and when, when it comes to traffic calming? It's not saying, hey, we don't want you to drive. It's not saying, hey, get off the streets. And we're not talking about gridlocking here. We're talking about maybe slowing down a little bit. And, and designing these things so that I feel safe walking on the sidewalk beside that traffic.
1: Exactly. Because right now, people aren't safe, and people don't feel safe, and then people don't go downtown. And so we, we're we're having in in downtown Hamilton this kind of slow, gradual, organic renaissance. It's happening. It's not happening very quickly, but it is happening. But it all stands on a nice edge. I mean, it could turn around very quickly. I don't know if you saw just yesterday um, the city's... Um, general manager of planning and economic development jason thorne uh, was quoted in a cbc hamilton article saying that um, there's a very strong correlation between the number of new in you know big development projects that are happening in the city and they're all being located around the lrt line and they're they're locating there because we're making that investment if we turn around and decide to kill that because we don't want to interrupt traffic it's going to be devastating for the city. Those projects that are in the pipeline are going to drop off. We're going to lose that opportunity to grow the tax base. We're going to lose the opportunity to add more people and more jobs and more opportunities in the centre of the city, which is already you know, heading towards thriving. We're going to throw the city into a terrible tailspin.
0: Well, one of the more ludicrous arguments I heard when we were talking about the transitions, of course, on, on Herkimer and everybody, was, was, you know, well, it used to take me eight minutes to get to work. Now it's taking me 14, and I'm really ticked off about that. And and, and the counselors, even the mountain counselors, I mean, they, they caved into that and simply said, well, you know, the, the short answer to that should be leave earlier. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe maybe, maybe don't have the second cup of coffee. Maybe just leave five minutes earlier, and you're going to be fine. You'll get to work on time. But they've got to blame somebody for this. And I mean, we've re- got to get our heads around this, that, that this is about community. It's not just about every individual and their own particular needs and desires.
1: Well, and before Herkimer and Charlton were converted, the city set up a uh, mobile speed radar, and they tracked people driving at 80 and 90 kilometers an hour down Herkimer, past Durand park and the playground at all hours of the day including eight o'clock in the morning nine o'clock in the morning three in the afternoon four in the afternoon this is when kids in the neighborhood are walking to and from school school and you have cars that are that are being recorded driving at 80 and 90 kilometers an hour inches away from where they're on the sidewalk you know if you look at queen street council is finally now saying okay we're going to talk about converting queen to two-way but i mean how every couple of weeks you have cars flipped upside down, lying on the sidewalk, where kids are trying to walk to school. I mean, you, know, you, you said before, like, do we need to have a crisis? We're already having a crisis, and we're ignoring it.
0: Well, it is an election year. Hopefully this will be part of the dialogue going forward. Uh, great piece and Raise the Hammer. You should check it out online uh, when you get a few minutes later on today. Ryan, thanks as always. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks. I really appreciate it, Bill. You're listening
0: to the Bill
2: Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The Ontario government, uh, the Doug Ford government, uh, announced yesterday they are planning on building a great big sign at the Canada-U.S. border that says, Our province is open for business. Do we really need to spend money building a sign like this? I mean, I understand the politics in this. I get that. but. It just seems rather ludicrous to me. Marvin Ryder is here, of course, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. And uh, great to have you. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here, Bill. What what, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, you know, during the provincial election campaign, uh, Doug Ford kept saying, I want to make. Ontario open for business? And frankly, I didn't understand the comment. Now, I'm probably going to anger a lot of your listeners when I say this. Ontario has been open for business and our economy is doing brilliantly. It was doing brilliantly before Doug Ford and it's continuing under Doug Ford. Just to give you a couple of examples, the uh, unemployment rate in Ontario is the lowest it's been in over 20 years. Do you remember a year ago at this time when people were talking about increasing the minimum wage to $14? Oh my gosh, unemployment is going to be a sea of unemployment. Oh, and small businesses are going to sl- close oh, the doors. And, and, it's and going oh, to be awful. Is going to, haven't seen any of that. In fact, just the opposite. We've had a very robust economy. In terms of growth, Ontario is the fastest growing economy. Now, I'm not talking again under Doug Ford. This is the second quarter of this year, which is be, sort of before the election. Yeah, yeah. Ontario was the fastest growing economy of all the provinces in Canada. Now, yes, occasionally, Alberta uh, usurps us when oil is doing really well, but we're doing fine. So when Doug Ford says we're open for business, I think I think what he means is that he is working to eliminate some taxes that that bothered some businesses. So one of those, of course, is cap and trade, the, the sort of the energy tax, carbon tax that he felt made us uncompetitive compared to the United States, where some states haven't enacted this. He's also pledging to bring down the marginal tax rate for businesses, both small and large. Ontario has one of, it's not the lowest, but one of the lowest marginal tax rates for business in North America. There's only a handful of jurisdictions that are lower, and they're only marginally lower Um and, and I would say to Doug Ford, why don't you wait and see what Mr. Morneau is going to do in the spring budget? He's also aware that there's some pressure on uh, the business sector, given Donald Trump's reduction in taxes, so he may do something federally. But we're open for business, we've been open for business, I don't think a sign's going to change that. If you want to have a sign that says, now with no carbon taxes, or now with uh, uh, no more increases in minimum wage for a year or two, fine, put that sign up. But to say we're open for business, we've always been open for business. Well, and, and- and the numbers bear that
0: out, and and by the way, I mentioned this yesterday when we were talking about an economic uh, subject as well. I, I think politicians get way too much credit when the economy goes well, and I too much of the blame when it goes in the, into the tank. Uh, and, and we're not in any way suggesting that well, the economy is robust in Ontario because of Kathleen Wynne. It may have been, it might have been in spite of Kathleen Wynne because of some of the things that she enacted. But nonetheless, the numbers are the numbers. And, and and I understand during election campaigns, you're always going to get bombast in and rhetoric. And, and, you know, that appeals, I guess, to the base to say, yeah, we
2: hate Kathleen Wynne, and yeah, the economy is terrible. Well, no, it's not. In fact, you know, the recession, I hate to say again this this out loud, our recession in in Canada and Ontario, 2007-8, that was 10 years ago. Now, it is absolutely true, we went through one of the longest periods of recovery, but we've recovered. We're out of this. There is no recession anymore. We are not suffering. In case people haven't realized, this is what good times look like now. They aren't quite the boom that we had, say, in the 60s and 70s. They're a little quieter boom, but these are the good times now. As you point out, uh, uh, you can't put a wall around the province or a wall around the country and keep your economy separate from everything else that is happening in the world so yes we've had some challenges when Europe has got a cold we've sneezed a bit when the United States gets a cold we sneeze a bit Um, even in the case of the United States you know everyone seems to um, many Americans seem to love what Donald Trump is doing with tariffs but there are signs now as we enter the third quarter of 2018 that his putting tariffs on on Canadian products on Chinese products on products from around the world are having a detrimental impact on the American economy he had a great second quarter. It, you know. On its own, it was 4% growth if you could annualize it over the course of a year. That's, that's spectacular. American economy hasn't grown like that for a long time. But I don't think the third quarter is going to be like that. And so uh, I'm curious to see what he does. Conceivably, Donald Trump as he sort of, I hate to use this term again, sort of willy-nilly throws tariffs here, there, and every place else, could not only cause recessions in other parts of the world, like Canada, but could send his own economy back into a recession, and that's not good for anybody.
0: The, uh, the other element of this, and, and I know that Jim Wilson, the uh, minister in charge of economic development, uh, when he made the announcement yesterday, all said, uh, you know, this, the, the previous government did a terrible job of cutting red tape, and that's always a concern for businesses, and we understand that. But last year, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business actually awarded Ontario honorable mention, and what they, they, they call it, their Golden Scissors Award, for governments that actually make it easier to do business in that jurisdiction. So they they seem to be on the right track. Instead of saying I'm going to put a sign up, that's that's like the guy saying I'm going to build a wall. Uh, that sign is not going to attract anybody. No, and, and in but, fact but in other words tell us what your plan is to keep this thing rolling. Right, uh, key, keep keep the momentum. But, but your point is I think is very very cogent to this Marvin is a lot of the things that are going to have an impact on the Ontario economy are without uh, without the, any ability of the Ontario economy to control this. it's okay. it's, it's the tra- it's the tariffs. It's the national the carbon tax debate is going to happen next year during the federal election campaign. We know that. And and whatever is going to happen there is going to have an impact on the Ontario economy. A sign isn't going to do anybody any good.
2: <laughs> no, I mean it is a bit of self-promotion, I suppose, and maybe signaling that there's a new new regime in Ontario, something like that. But no, I under, it, under new management, under new management, yeah. So I think to go back to your point, there there has been some momentum. Now I know again people don't want to give Kathleen Wynne much credit for anything, but yes, she was doing some interesting things in this province. And now the question for the new government is how. How do you build on those good things? I get it, there are some bad things, fine, don't build on those, but how do you build on the good things she was doing? Now one of those challenges around red tape that everyone talks about is that not all red tape is provincial. There is some red tape which is federal and there's also some red tape which is municipal. So a good government I think would be working at all three levels, with all three levels of government, to say what can we do to make the community more receptive to business. I'll also tell you when it comes to taxes, and here I am teaching at a business school, I should be very pro-business, but I'm a little worried with the current mantra, which is that we should keep cutting business taxes, cutting business taxes, cutting business taxes. Then how do we fund our government? And if we're going to get less and less money from the business sector, there's only one place to get the money from, and it's from you and I. And mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's a partnership. I think every business understands that they do. Contributing taxes is a worthwhile part of being a community, to fund the health care programs in the community community. community to fund the social programs that's part of their role so I get it that we want to stay competitive with the United States but if for some reason if for some reason Donald Trump said I'm going to cut all business taxes business pays no tax whatsoever I don't think like lemmings we should be following suit well listen let's connect the
0: dots here for just a second story in the news today uh, about parents being very concerned about how hot it is in schools Mm -hmm. why don't they have air conditioning well, let me go back about 6 weeks to when the uh, the Ford government announced they were going to kill the cap and trade program, and with that announcement, they also said all that funding that was supposed to go to schools for repairs, you're not getting it. Not a cent, not a cent. Well, th- that's cause and effect. So in other words, hey, that's great. He's saving us money. We're not going to have to pay that. But now the schools are suffering. Now the kids are hot in school. I mean, it is a cause and effect. If you if governments take in less money,
2: they're going to do less. <laughs> that's correct. That's well, all there is to it. Uh, another example that somebody stopped me the other day and said, uh, "I thought gasoline prices were supposed to go down ten cents a liter," and I reminded him that well, four point two percent, four point two cents was going to come from killing cap and trade. So, well, I thought I thought he killed cap and trade. Well. Sort of, but those people who bought into cap and trade in the first couple of quarters of this year are saying, I want my money back. So the money the government took in, the billions of dollars that the government took in under cap and trade, they may have to give it all back. He won't have it to spend on other things. And and again, I I have to tell you, Bill, I'm a little ambivalent on cap and trade. I think we do owe it to ourselves to do something around carbon. I also know that if I tax something, people will change their their use of it, or in this case, their creation of it. it makes you think twice then before you you do certain things. And the whole idea of cap and trade was this wasn't going to be money that just went into the government's general coffers. They were going to turn around and spend it on other energy saving initiatives. So take a school as a great example. We could do an energy retrofit, put more insulation in the walls, get a modern heating, ventilating, air conditioning system that uses less energy. This was going to be part of it. For people, you would be able to tap into programs to improve your home and your energy efficiency. That money wasn't going to stay in the the government's hands; it was going to go back out into the public. Even Justin Trudeau's federal um, cap and trade program or carbon tax program is designed to be the same thing: revenue neutral in the sense that the revenue that comes in on one hand is going to go out in terms of programs on the other side. These or, were not or bad things. Or rebates. British Columbia offers rebates, right? But all these things would be good, good things. Uh, I understand we pay a little more marginally, but honestly, Bill, when you when you pay at the tank, when you pay at the pump, and you pull out a credit card, do you notice the buck or two? Likewise, if I cut it, if he cuts four point two cents a liter, my typical fill up is around twenty five liters, so I save a dollar. I don't think I'm going to notice that dollar.
0: Not really. Yeah, you know, and what i want to see here is is this government and they're the government of the day here in ontario so let's work with these guys yeah. i mean that's what we're going to do you know, that's what we should do with every government instead of simply sitting and criticizing but but show us cause and effect bring money in how are you going to spend that money instead of simply saying uh, you know we're going to we're going to govern by edict here on a philosophical level uh, you know i hate taxes so i'm going to kill that program because that's really just a tax Well, yeah, but that's a generation for the government. That's cash generation for the government.
2: And if you do that, well, let's have that discussion about what's going to be impacted. We're not there yet. Right. Well, to just go back to the gasoline tax, so 4.2 cents were going to come from killing cap and trade. Where's the other 5.8 cents to get you 10 cents a liter? It was going to be cutting the government taxes on gasoline. Now, again... I I don't have a problem with that. I'd like to spend less at the pump. It doesn't seem like very much. 5.8 cents per liter when a a, a liter of gasoline is $1.25 or $1.30, thirty. But that was billions, billions of dollars of revenue for this government that he's going to wipe off with a stroke of a pen. How do you replace that? Remember, he criticized the liberals as well for running deficits. And I think this is one of the reasons why the liberals lost the provincial election. They were running fairly large deficits. Oh, you're mortgaging our children's future for these programs. Great, Doug. So you're not, you don't want to run deficits, but you're also going to cut some revenue generation. How do you make it up? And, and that's the math that I haven't seen. I am looking forward. I am looking forward to the first budget under this conservative government uh, just to see how they make the math happen. Let's talk, uh, just
0: uh, while you're in here, a couple of minutes about uh, some of those other extraneous factors uh, (laughs) with this economy nationally. Uh, And it looks as if uh, we may be a lot closer to a NAFTA deal than than Donald Trump is letting on. Wow. Uh, I, I know. I know the, the, the dispute resolution, and uh, it seems to still be the stumbling block. But but even the Canadian government and Christy Freeland said, look, at this, they're going to be flexible about supply management too, and by sh- simply
2: increasing the amount of, of American product that can come in here that should be a win win yeah so i think we're down to three issues bill i think one around supply management is that we are not going to dismantle supply management that makes our farmers gives our farmers quotas make sure they don't overproduce into the marketplace in fact frankly i think the united states would be well off to adopt supply management rather than having each farmer try to produce the maximum and then wind up dumping milk on their fields so instead what it's going to be is how much american product can come in duty free there is a certain amount now under the current agreement and and so let's say it was 100,000 units whatever those units are America obviously wants it unlimited. We're going to propose something else. And I think you do horse trade and you find the number. Uh, also, our cultural sector, we, we uh, in the radio, the TV business, there are quotas on Canadian content because we don't want to become America North. And I, I think, again, we'll get through that. Dispute resolution going back 25 years to the first NAFTA was the biggest biggest um, problem in the in the negotiation. 25 years ago, they were still talking about it, still setting the formal language three hours before Brian Mul'Roney and, and uh, Ronald Reagan stood together and signed the document. From the United States standpoint, what's the philosoph- philosophy here is that they don't like the idea that a foreign, judge or power could pass a ruling that affects them. So their philosophy is, if under NAFTA we have a complaint against an American company, it should be heard and settled by American judges, period, full stop. What is currently in place in NAFTA is instead a three-person tribunal, one person from Canada, one person from Mexico, one person from the United States. These three judges hear it, and they issue a ruling. It doesn't have to be unanimous. Two-one wins. And yes, conceivably, it's possible that the Canadian-Mexican judge might agree and the American judge might disagree, but so what? It's going to happen anyway. Uh, And and so I I like that. I think that's fair. Fair. Uh, I honest to God think that Lighthizer and Ross, who are actually the point people on this, doing the face-to-face negotiations, I think they understand some of this. But they have a boss who day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, his understanding and his views can change, and that's the the climate we're in. So conceivably, Bill, I could walk out of this room when we're done talking, and uh, there could be an announcement we have NAFTA. We could have it by tomorrow at 5 it could take another week or two, but we are getting closer and closer because we've been able to make many of the other problems go away. But, but there's a process issue here too, But and, and I know that's their problem, not
0: Canada's, but it is going to have an impact on us. Mm-hmm. Uh, because trade is supposed to be under the purview of of Congress, not Mm -hmm. the President. Mm -hmm. And it was Congress that gave the President permission Mm -hmm. to
2: open negotiations. Uh, But it still has to come back to them, and Trump seems to want to circumvent that. Well, he does, and so you know his belief is that once he signs it, it's de facto law, and and maybe it is today, given that the Republicans control the House and the Senate. But uh, the current timeline, let's suppose uh, everything gets inked, and we have a a paper deal by October 1st. uh, This current administration in the House and the Senate will not be the one to ratify it. It'll be the next one coming in after these midterm elections. The only advantage to trying to get the deal by October 1st is we can deal with the existing Mexican president. He would have the capability of signing this. Now, uh, the current president, Peña Nieto, has said he'd be happy to sign it. The incoming president, Lopez Obrador, has said he'd be willing to sign it. But the concern is any new administration, things may change. And I only have to look at the American change from Obama sure. to Trump to say, boy, a new administration can change dramatically. So it would nail one of them. For Canada, it doesn't really matter because our process will still happen under Justin Trudeau, whether we sign it today, tomorrow, October 1st. Uh, it, we'll have this all ratified by the time of the fall election in 2019 so it won't affect us but it does affect the United States but again in Trump's mind once he signs it it's going to be law oddly enough Bill even if there's a change if the Democrats take control of the House if the Democrats take control of the Senate I think a fairly negotiated NAFTA which is again what we're all looking for will be approved without a problem a Donald Trump ram it down his throat NAFTA could be in trouble so again we'll have to see how this all plays out I'm missing
0: one element here that is very concerning. I have heard no discussion at all about whether or not signing a deal or striking some sort of a deal is going to automatically lift those tariffs on steel and aluminum. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I, and because that was Trump,
2: that's not Congress, yeah, and and yeah. you just don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm laughing. I, I mean, that would make absolutely logical sense. If you can remember back in in April and May, he put tariffs on all the rest of the world, but not Canada and Mexico. Why? Because we're negotiating NAFTA. When we failed to get the deal by June 1st, he said, well, Well, okay, now you're going to get tariffs because I don't have a deal with you. But if you get a deal, you know, good things can happen. So if we sign the deal tomorrow, I would like to believe that maybe not the very next day, but within a week or two, the ter- the tariffs would be lifted on steel and aluminum. Note, by the way, we're using this word tariff. He's also said if Canada can't find its way to making a deal, I'm going to impose tariffs on the auto sector. And again, he's very vague here. I don't know if it's just on finished automobiles, if it's on automotive parts, if it's every time it crosses the border, there'd be a 20 25% tariff devastating to the Ontario economy. It'd be devastating to the Ontario economy, but it would also be devastating to the American economy. The big three domestic automobile producers, Ford, GM, Chrysler, testified in front of Congress. They do not want this. 40% of their sales come from product they import from other places. It would hurt them as much as anybody else. Please, Mr. Trump, do not do this. You are not helping your domestic industry. But Donald Trump is Donald Trump. and. I, you know, every minute is a is a roller coaster ride. I don't know which way we're going next. Would that we could. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming
0: in today. Glad to be here, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the uh, DeGroote School of Business.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. Shock and awe. Uh, that was, of course, uh, one of the uh, main thrusts of the Bush administration when it came to the invasion of Iraq. It's what's happening in the Washington political circles these days. Uh, It was double-barreled action yesterday, of course, with uh, the release of excerpts from Bob Woodward's new book, In the Morning, then in the afternoon, the uh, anonymous op-ed piece in the New York Times Online, Uh, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. Joining us to talk about the implications and uh, the letter itself, Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming in today.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Uh, This this was a day. Uh, (laughs) uh, I thought the Woodward (laughs) book and the excerpts from that book were going to dominate the news cycle yesterday. And they Mm -hmm. did until this happened.
3: Yeah, this is really notable because Woodward has done books on a bunch of different presidents uh, and we know that he was the original reporter, one of the reporting group that that handled Watergate and had Deep Throat. And so he's got credibility unlike maybe any journalist on the planet. And so his book was more than just a pile on. It was more than just, you know, one more book on the chaos inside the Trump administration. It's not Michael Wolf writing this. It's not salacious. This is Bob Woodward. And if he's writing it, he's got the table. To back it up, so that was a big deal, and it added to the narrative, and it, it I think maybe convinced even some soft Trump supporters out there, sort of the um, Republican Chamber of Commerce types that might have voted for him or who really just dis- had a distaste for Hillary Clinton. The Bob Woodward book would probably add a little bit more impetus to say, hey, hold on, we at least need to check on the president's power. Maybe a Democratic vote for Congress this fall at the midterms is actually just going to check that a little bit. So so it is alarming, the Woodward book. Um, it, it just makes everyone know, okay, this is for real. But then this letter, this letter is truly unprecedented because when we found out about the Pentagon Papers years ago and when we found out about all these other presidents who had these issues in the White House in the last days of Nixon and all the rest, it was long after uh, the presidency and the crisis internally had been averted or had been stopped. To find out in the midst of it, from inside, you know, the call is coming from inside the house here. Uh, That is really unprecedented. And it speaks to a number of possibilities, and there's a lot of speculation out there. Uh, But we all have to take a pause and just say, "This this has never happened before. We are watching... We are getting inside intel that there is a crisis to the likes of maybe with Woodrow Wilson or, or with you know some of these other presidents who got ill or, had, uh, or were incapacitated, but we're finding ab- out about it now. It's, it's not being hidden from us. Um, and so what does that mean for America? There's tons of implications.
0: And, and there is a historical perspective on this. I mean, there are secrets always in the White House, mm-hmm. and those secrets are always kept. I mean, FDR is illness. Uh, right. the, the American public didn't know about that. Uh, JFK's dalliances. Uh, mm-hmm. On and on it goes. Uh, uh, indications that Ronald Reagan was suffering from early signs of dementia. The mm-hmm. last part of his his uh, tenure in the White House. But this is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is uh, this is threatening, as the letter says. Uh, the the very essence of the, of their democracy and what's going on in the White House on a daily basis. Uh, you know when when this letter talks about you know a president that rants and, and can't stay on topic on issues and starts making decisions. Uh, one line here. Meetings uh, with him veer off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants. His impulsiveness results in half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions that have to be walked back. That's uh, that's a damning statement.
3: So, to me, uh, it is. But to me, that was not the most concerning parts of this letter. Um, the fact that he had, you know, ordered a kill order on on uh, Assad. Uh, the fact that he, the way that he talks about war and the and the use of power of of executive power with the military, the fact that you have in this is coming out of Woodward's book too, the the idea that Mattis has to say yes, sir, Mr. President, will do that, and then tell his team that's not going to happen, right? So, so who is running? the United States' most powerful military on earth. Is it the duly elected civilian oversight, which is how it's supposed to work, or is it, in fact, these generals, whether it's Kelly or Mattis or whoever else, uh, is the military effectively controlling the military decisions for this White House? Now, everyone swears an oath not to the president. They swear an oath not to do... Taken a legal order, right? So if those orders are in fact illegal, then Mattis is completely within his rights to say, we're not going to be doing that. But it begs the question who is running? United States government? Is it a cadre of of insider, Trump picks, political appointees who are part of this resistance, which they say is not the resistance of the left to Trump. They support his tax cuts, they support his deregulations. It's a resistance to some of the more dangerous impulses that he has, right? So who's running our government? Or who, not our government, who's running the world, essentially? The world needs to have an answer to that. And so I think we will need to find out the depth and breadth and scope of who these people are and how many decisions they've thwarted or changed um, because that's not how the u s is supposed to work
0: during the campaign during his his run up to get the nomination during the campaign for the presidency uh, and even subsequent to that Laura, know almost the next uh, the past two years uh we we've all been watching what's been said, what he has said mm-hmm. uh what he's tried to do and and the discussion has always been well, this is the tipping point uh, the American public's going to have enough congress is just going to say enough is enough. Uh, and it's never happened. <laughs> Are, are we closer to it now because of what happened yesterday?
3: I don't think anything in that letter would be a surprise to congressional leadership. To well, that's, Paul, what, that's what David Horn yeah. said, right, from Mother th-
0: Jones yesterday. Right. He said, why are we surprised by this? We yeah, knew this, didn't we? We
3: did. And, and we know that Paul Ryan and McConnell and Graham and others have been, it seems, playing that sort of keep your enemies closer kind of thing. They have been aware. Um, if, you t- if you listen to White House reporters, they'll say that off the record, these guys say to them, listen, you don't know what I've stopped. You know, you guys can give me a hard time for looking like I'm blindly following this guy or letting him get away with stuff. But by staying close to him, I've stopped all these terrible things. So I think what the letter did yesterday is it gave us an indication that, okay, maybe, maybe in fact, that's why these guys have not moved against him because they want to keep that sense of connection, right? Uh, And so are they enablers? Yes, Uh, but are they enablers for the sake of our global security? Maybe we need to just give a pause and and kind of reflect on that. What I thought was so interesting in the letter was where it talked about people who have been cast as villains by the media are actually doing yeoman's work. They're actually getting in the face of this hurricane daily and preventing chaos. Um, So I'm sort of rethinking it a little, although there is some theories that say... Is this just a group of people who, after the McCain funeral, realized they didn't want to be have a legacy of being on the wrong side of history? So they're sort of saying, uh, you know, you can't blame us when we leave this administration because we we tried and we put it out there that we tried. And so I think David Frum said it's a bit of a cowardly coup in that in that capacity. So maybe that's what they're doing—just running some interference for their own legacy, uh, or maybe it is what it looks like on its face: a group of people saying this is getting worse and we want you to know that we're here and we're doing. We're the adults in the room. Uh, But at the end of the day, these adults in the room should be going over to Congress. There is an actual process for this. The question is, do they feel as though the Congress would support them and protect them? I mean, we've got the president demanding the New York Times, turn this person over. We have him tweeting it's treason. Whoever wrote this letter... Had to know there would be dire consequences, and maybe felt that they couldn 't go to Congress and follow those channels i mean it is it is really mind boggling the the implications of this op ed
0: well let 's talk about the the other end of this, and that 's the journalistic mm-hmm. side uh, This is not without president to 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 sh- uh, publish an op ed piece like this mm-hmm. under anonymity. Uh, And and by the way, we need to to clarify that because uh, this writer is not anonymous. The New York (laughs) York Times knows who it is. (laughs) The the editor who was responsible for this said that they had a a face-to-face conversation, not just a phone conversation, with this individual who he says he knows and trusts and knows very well. So it's not really anonymous. The only thing that that we really have to hang our hat on here is the Times said, we don't want to let you know who it is right now.
3: You know, and it, there's a fascinating little piece here. Uh, if, if this is deep throat too, let's say the fact that Bob Woodward's book dovetails with this release um, is just is just too much for those of us who follow media and politics, right? I mean, you, you can't even write this stuff at all. We've said that so many times with Trump, but really, uh, so of course, the person's not anonymous. The New York Times is taking tremendous hits about this decision, and people, and the pressure they will get from the White House to reveal this source for national security, and the scrutiny they will get for readers when eventually it will come out who it was and readers will decide, well, that wasn't worth the anonymity that you provided, right? The New York Times has opened up Pandora's box for themselves on this. And so that tells me that the person had to have been high enough up that it was absolutely legitimate. It was apparently negotiated by a third party intermediary, which just shows you that who's ever doing this knows what they're doing from a media perspective perspective. Uh, And some of the language in it are words used by the vice president, which could have been co-opted by the author to throw off the scent, right? If If you use someone else's colloquialisms in a letter like that when you want to protect your identity, then people kind of chase rabbit holes the wrong direction. So whoever wrote this letter every word seems calculated the you know pulling other people's language and styles the the concept that they put in about the casting of people as being villains when in fact they are the heroes it it is very very cleverly written Um, and we will probably find out who it was eventually but the New York Times had to have felt it was worth it
0: on that point though uh, whoever this individual is and and we have to assume it's somebody and we don't even know I mean you Hmm. you may not even be working in the White House a senior official could be anybody in government uh, mm-hmm. in, a, in a trusted position. But if this, this Fletcher Christian, who's, mm-hmm. who's trying to keep the good ship bounty on course through this whole thing, <laughs> right. uh, if that, it, it, I mean, uh, you know how it ended for Fletcher Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, banished, gone. I mean, what this individual, what about their credibility when they do come forward?
3: Well, they will either be uh, lauded the, the as t- a the, hero. The, the, the Times is
0: right? right. setting this person up for failure because unless right. it's somebody, you know, whose who's desk is outside the Oval Office, they're going to say, what do they know?
3: Yeah, um, so one of the things I think that's interesting and adds to the confusion is that Trump has had sort of this open door policy. He has not wanted to have a a White House office where if you read Michael Wolf's book, one of the aides talked about, you know, usually if someone's gonna get to the Oval Office to see the president, there's a 50 point strategy to get there. You have to go through all these hoops and all these approvals. He's had this kind of open door like he's running his business at a Trump Tower. So the amount of people who have access and knowledge of what's going on is so vast that tracking them down would be difficult. What I can think, though, is that the New York Times has been, uh, with the Washington Post, really on the vanguard of, of trying to check this presidency and this administration for them to grant this anonymity. I have to believe it's not someone who happens to work over in, you know, in the Pentagon who happens to walk into the office once in a while. They would not have done that um, because of the pressure, because of the conversation that we're having, because of their credibility. Uh, you know, As much as people might love what they're doing uh, on the Trump administration, it's also very critical readership of the New York Times. They expect them to be the paper of record, and if they've messed this up gratuitously, they're going to pay for it. So I have to believe it's someone high up.
0: To maintain that credibility, though, mm-hmm. and to maintain this in the news cycle, Does that person have to step forward soon?
3: Well, people are certainly calling for that. But I think if I were that person, I wouldn't be stepping forward with a mercurial president who's asked if it's treason and demanded for national security for them to be turned over unless I absolutely knew that I had the congressional leadership backing. If I didn't have some powerful senators, uh, Graham and McConnell and others, who were going to run interference and, and give me whistleblower protection, I don't think that I'd make that move. I mean, for all the people saying that they're cowards, they're cowards. Just think about the consequence uh, if they come out and they're not protected. You know, it, it, it's, it's tremendously unsettling. And if people felt that there was a strong congressional legislative branch and if the, there was going to be fairness and there was going to be good protections under the law, maybe they would. But everything seems to be in such a state of flux and chaos right now that I would expect that they're going to um, wait a little while until they've negotiated that kind of an uh, arrangement.
0: Shouldn't they have done that before they s- in, put the letter out?
3: Yeah, well, or maybe they have, and we just don't know it.
0: Look at what's happened over the last 24 hours, Laura. The reaction so far. Uh, is not encouraging for this individual to come forward because mm-hmm. they're getting slammed even for people that don't like Trump and say, yeah, this is valid, but you should have put your name on it.
3: Right, and and they allude to the fact that there are dozens. I mean, that something came out today that there are dozens of these people who are, which just also um, helps with that deep state conspiracy theory, right? I can imagine Trump at his next rally is going to say, see, the deep state exists. They just admitted to it, which has led some people to think this is a setup letter by the Trump administration to create the appearance of the deep state. And I have to believe that the New York Times would have thought of that and would have made sure that this was authentic and the person had seniority, or they wouldn't have done it because it leads to those kind of theories. At the end of the day, though, we don't know how long this has been negotiated for, what the next steps are. For someone to write a letter like that, at that level of risk, that is literally going to shake the world. I mean, foreign leaders around the world are are reading this op-ed, right? It is significant in layers. And if you listen to foreign policy experts and former admirals, they're saying this basically tells the world that our president does not run the military, that our president doesn't have the power of presidential control anymore. You know, it's a soft mutiny, right? Like you, it is, it is... Amazing. And in, we might be a nerd to some of that, because we hear so much Trump stuff all the time. But you just have to look at this from that kind of geopolitical perspective. All of that being said, the person who wrote this letter put themselves to uh, an, an America at a level of great risk. Um, so you, you have to think that they have a strategy, that they're, if, it is, if it is authentic in terms of what they're telling, that there is a group of them who, and you saw the word they took a vow. That suggests yeah. some organization, right? Uh, so you have to think that a group that would do this and take a vow at that level, that they have a plan, you know, that there's a strategy, that they're working out some way to um, to thwart whatever agenda they think they're thwarting with Trump on, and maybe get Congress involved. So we don't know, and we're all speculating, uh, but just the level of it from a media viewpoint is so significant that you have to think that the thinking behind it is also quite strategic. Uh,
0: Trump is paranoid to, to begin with and, and we, that's pretty obvious based on his actions and his, uh, what he's done over the last little while. how does how does a, a Trump actually try to deal with this then? I mean you know we've, we've heard that he's going to purge the staff he doesn't know who to trust now.
3: Yeah, I remember, didn't Trump say years ago, I read one of his books years ago, where he said, you're not paranoid if people are after you? <laughs> you know, something along that nature. Um, now, it doesn't feel much like paranoia. It feels like he legitimately has people working against his against his, his will, um, working to thwart his agenda, parts of it anyway. And so... He will go on a, a, on a legitimate witch hunt, I guess, um, looking for people, but they've tried that before. They've tried to get the leakers out. They've taken away cell phones. Remember Spicer tried to do it. Yeah. Um, they cannot contain the leaks now, um, and I doubt that anything that he does is going to expose the individual, but what this sets up, and I think it's a valid criticism of this letter writer, is that if you are basically saying that there is a bear who's acting wildly and and risking everybody. You just did the ultimate poke of that bear. And now what have you unleashed?
0: That's and that's the concern. I know Howard <laughs> Feynman uh, tweeted about that just about an hour and a half or so ago suggesting, look, as bad as things were, uh, you may have just made them worse by writing this letter and publishing this letter. And, and, and that's I guess something we won't know the answer for, uh, not immediately anyway, but it is something that we're going to have to be concerned about. <laughs>
3: Absolutely, and I think that we should all follow this closely, not jump to any conclusions, but understand the enormity of it.
0: Laura Babcock from Power Group, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in today.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.